Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, April 15th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The CDC says that we should wait two weeks after our final COVID-19 vaccinations to be considered fully vaccinated. But why? What do spiderwebs sound like? These scientists turned them into music. Google Earth's latest feature shows us how destructive we have been to the planet. And the new YouTube channel that I can't get enough of that features Hot Wheels on a treadmill. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So one thing about vaccines that I at least feel like isn't being super well publicized is the need to wait for two weeks after your last shot before you can consider yourself fully vaccinated. And this goes for any of the vaccines you may be getting. So if it's a single shot like Johnson & Johnson, you're fully vaccinated two weeks after that single shot. And if it's two shots like Moderna or Pfizer, you're fully vaccinated two weeks after your second shot. That is the official word from the CDC here in the U.S. and is supported by infectious disease experts. But why exactly? Mark Cameron, an immunologist at Case Western Reserve University who was instrumental in containing SARS in 2003, explains it's like vaccines are giving our immune system a to-do list, which it then needs time to complete. What's on the list? Quoting Mashable, One, our immune system will gradually recognize the spike protein produced by the vaccine as an intruder. Two, in response to recognizing this foreign spike protein, the body's immune cells will cooperate to start producing protective proteins called antibodies to protect you against the virus. If you're infected, these antibodies bind to the spike proteins of the virus, making it difficult or impossible for the virus to bind and gain access to our cells. And when inside, the virus hijacks our cellular machinery to mass multiply. It's an effective parasite. It's around the two-week mark that the immune system is producing antibodies at levels that block infections, said Cameron. End quote. As time goes on, more studies are showing how long this efficacy lasts, with a large-scale trial of the Pfizer vaccine showing antibodies still working well six months in. And immunity is not just about antibodies. There are other factors for us to be aware of as well. Quoting again, The vaccine also triggers other parts of the immune system to develop longer-term protection against the coronavirus. They're called memory T and B cells, and they have the ability to store the memory of the spike protein in our immune systems in case the virus enters the body again. They can react to later infections and start up the antibody construction again, explained Cameron, who noted that researchers are still investigating how effective this component of COVID immunity is and how long it might last, end quote. There's been a lot of talk for a while about the possibility of the COVID vaccine needing to be an annual one, like the flu shot, or at least requiring some kind of booster, like the chickenpox shot, whether for continued efficacy or to combat certain variants that are emerging. Just before recording, it was announced that Pfizer CEO Albert Borla thinks it's likely we'll need annual COVID-19 vaccinations. This didn't seem to be based on any new data necessarily, but it is in line with what officials have been saying, including David Kessler, the Biden administration's COVID response chief science officer, who said today at the same event that we should expect booster shots to come. In addition to studying the durability of the antibody response over time, Pfizer began testing a third dose back in February. So again, this idea of a third or subsequent shots is not new information, it's just being publicized after a big event today. 
Now, regardless of how long antibodies last or not, we are very clear on how long they take to really kick in. Science communicator Ian Hayden shared a graph on Twitter based on a recently published study of antibody persistence in the Moderna vaccine that shows a dramatic increase in the virus blocking abilities in that two-week period following the second dose. You can see the graph for yourself at the link in the show notes. And Dr. Thomas Russo, the chief of infectious disease at the University of Buffalo, explained that for the two-dose vaccines, your first dose is like a primer shot, and the second one is when your immune system really gets going and causes a surge in antibodies body production. He says the second shot increases antibodies tenfold. Dr. Vince Silenzio, an MD and professor in the Rutgers School of Public Health, makes this comparison, quote, when Peter Parker gets bitten by a radioactive spider, he's not able to climb walls right away, end quote. It takes time for both radioactive venom and vaccines to pass through your body and do their work. Although Dr. Silenzio also reminds us that even Spider-Man isn't completely invincible. And yeah, sometimes he doesn't feel too good. And likewise, we still need to remain vigilant after getting the vaccine and waiting the full two weeks. Variants are on the rise, and many people are still unable to get vaccinated, so avoiding large gatherings and wearing masks in public and around people at high risk is still the best practice. And I know it can be tempting to cut corners, you know, if you're aware of how effective the two-dose vaccines are after even just one dose, let alone waiting for the full two weeks after your second one, you might feel safe enough doing things you didn't before. But when everyone decides to cut corners, that's how we end up increasing transmission and increasing the risk of more variants being created that the vaccines are less effective against. As Mashable says, quote, Waiting for the vaccines to kick in is crucial because infection numbers remain high in the U.S. with extreme outbreaks in certain places like Michigan. And when the virus makes people seriously ill for weeks at a time, it continues replicating by the millions and inevitably mutating. That's how potentially more transmissible, partially vaccine-resistant coronavirus variants form. We're giving this virus plenty of opportunity, warned Cameron. Vaccinate and wait. He emphasized, end quote. When spiders spin their webs, whether it's to capture dwarves and hobbits or pen messages to save a pig from slaughter, they use vibrations to perceive their environment and craft the intricate structures. So a team of scientists led by MIT engineering professor Marcus Bueller decided to see what would happen if those vibrations could be sonified in a way so that humans could hear the spider webs. Quoting Vice, much like how visualization presents data in digestible charts and graphs, sonification translates data into interpretable sounds. The technique has been applied to a variety of data sources, from objects in outer space to the U.S. housing bubble to effects of climate change on forest composition. But sonifying the structures of spiderwebs was a particularly fitting choice because spiders rely on sound and vibration to understand their environment, Bueller said. They're essentially blind, and so the way they experience the world is actually through vibrations, either through the web as a giant receptor of vibrations or by communicating with each other. They look for mates by tapping on the floor, he said. Working in the range of sounds that can be heard by the human ear, Bueller and his team used the physics of spiderwebs to assign audible tones to a given string's unique tension and vibration. Summing up every string's tone created an interactive model of a web that could produce sound through manipulation or VR navigation, 
end quote. And they have a number of videos on their YouTube channel where you can hear different ways they produced the sonification, some showing VR walkthroughs people did where they're actually going through the spider web producing sounds as they go. Here is a listen to one of those. They're all pretty haunting like that, which I think is fitting for a Spider-Verse. Bueller says of the sound, quote, You hear something that in the beginning sounds quite dissonant for the human ear, but after you spend some time in the web, it becomes strangely familiar, end quote. And he says that if you listen long enough, like during an immersive concert of the sort he and his colleagues used to hold pre-pandemic, ordinary music can sound kind of weird for a little bit afterwards. They have a lot of other data sources they've sonified on their YouTube in addition to the spiders, like the coronavirus spike protein and some amino acids. But they're focusing on the spiders for now and have some lofty goals. Bueller plans to generate spider sounds with AI, play it to real spiders, and gauge their reaction, leading up to his goal of eventually communicating with the spiders. Based on what spiders have had to say for themselves in various books and movies over the years, I'm not sure how well that'll go. But, I mean, hey, maybe we'll end up with a nice Charlotte's Web or James and the Giant Peach kind of situation. We can hope. So, Google Earth introduced a new 3D time-lapse feature today, which, among other things, demonstrates how humans have absolutely wrecked this planet. The interactive tool, called time-lapse, one word, goes back 37 years, fittingly beginning in 1984, and shows any place on the globe. After hitting the Voyager tab in Google Earth, shown as a ship's wheel, you can watch time flick by one year per frame, and you can move the camera's position as it runs through time. You can also select one of Google's guided tours, which show stark visualizations of forest change, warming temperatures, mining, urban growth, and more. Quoting Wired, the project is a result of collaboration between Google, NASA, the U.S. Geological Survey, the European Commission, and the European Space Agency. The interactive video combines satellite imagery from NASA's Landsat program and the EU's Copernicus project, both of which are intended to provide near-continuous imagery of the surface of the planet. Those resources all mashed together result in a staggering amount of data. Google says the time-lapse feature draws from 20 petabytes of satellite imagery combined to create a 4.4 terabyte pixel video, that's 4.4 million megapixels, that maps to the surface of the globe. Google says this new 3D time-lapse is a way to provide more context about the ways humans have affected the Earth. In the company's featured time-lapse videos, shorelines shift, glaciers recede, ice caps melt, end quote. Rebecca Moore, director of Google Earth, Google Earth Engine, and Google Earth Outreach, said, quote, It's not about zooming in, it's about zooming out. It's about taking the big step back. We need to see how our only home is doing. She additionally said, quote, The time-lapse distills that enormous archive of satellite data into an easily understandable picture of our changing planet. It makes the abstract concrete, and we hope that this can ground everyone in an objective, common understanding of what's actually happening on the planet and inspire action. End quote. 
It does demonstrate the effects of climate change in a very stark way, that's for sure. And if you're having a little trouble loading Google Earth on your computer, as I often do, The Verge has some select GIFs of melting glaciers and shrinking shorelines in the article linked in the show notes. So here is a completely joyous YouTube channel I recently stumbled on. Longtime listeners may remember almost a year ago now when I shared one of my favorite YouTube channels slash communities, Gels Marble Runs. It's basically super high production value marble racing with intricate obstacle courses, a complex system of leagues and competitions, and a huge devoted fan following. It's so great that even John Oliver ended up being one of their sponsors last year. If you haven't looked into Gels Marble Runs, before, definitely check the link in the show notes. But today, I discovered a newer, slightly simpler channel that, I mean, who knows, could grow to be as sleek and expansive as Jill's Marvel runs, but at the moment doesn't even really have a cohesive branded title for me to refer to it with. What it is, is racing Hot Wheels cars on a treadmill. And it's amazing. The channel is run by real estate agent Steve Wilkins, and in fact, many of the older videos on the channel are showcasing various properties. But for the last couple of months, he and his kids have been producing these amazing die-cast toy car treadmill racing videos. They've already got a number of different competitions going, like the Talladega Super Speedway, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Demolition Derby, and April Mayhem. If you're wondering how die-cast cars racing on a treadmill works, well, don't think too hard. They put sometimes as many as a hundred different toy cars on a treadmill, turn it on, and then see which one stays on the treadmill the longest. Not being a physicist, I was pleasantly surprised to see just how unpredictable it actually is. Some cars fall off the back immediately, while others cling to the front, and some make triumphant returns, bouncing into each other, spinning and turning in different directions. Like I said, the videos are pretty lo-fi and simple right now, all just one shot with printer paper titles, but it's super wholesome. You've got Wilkins, the dad, acting as behind-the-camera commentator, a role he plays with gusto and lots of Talladega Nights references, and the kids chiming in on occasion to describe the competitors in the race or kick off the video with a recorder performance. I mean, watching the cars on the treadmill is hilarious and weirdly captivating. That would be more than enough to make these videos great, but there's a certain extra wholesomeness of basically just watching a dad being goofy and creative with his kids. The videos are picking up steam with each in the tens of thousands of views right now, so it'll be interesting to see where this goes from here, and especially which racers win the April Mayhem competition, whose final is this Friday tomorrow. If you want to tune into that, link to the YouTube channel is, as ever, in the show notes. So it's kind of a little too late to be sharing this, but it is happening again next week, so keep this on your radar. Scott Duke Commoner has turned his Commoner's Conundrums column on Bloomberg into an escape room. Yes, the text column is being billed as an escape room. The article is called, Can You Escape This Column? He posted the initial article with clues earlier this week, and Bloomberg shared a series of tweets earlier today adding to the clues, with many people referring to the thread itself as an escape room. To escape the column, you have to find three keys, each in the form of a pair of words. 
Quoting the column, Putting those words together will reveal the way out. Once you escape the path, it will lead you to a secret location, the name of which is this week's answer. End quote. If you figure it out, you're supposed to email a provided address at Bloomberg before midnight Eastern tonight, April 15th. But again, if you are listening after that time, they say they will be doing another escape room style puzzle on April 18th. So if this is your kind of thing, check it out. You know, virtual escape rooms have been surprisingly fun during the pandemic, but this one is free. So why not give it a shot? Link in the show notes. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.